Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. some way uh, we've covered a lot and in other ways I feel like we're just touching the surface and truthfully I always feel like this. Uh, I could sit here and talk for 90 days and I would feel on the 89th day like we're just getting started. Um, so it's very good for my family that I have you as an audience. <laughs> so um, Let's review what we've discussed so far. In the first class, I talked about yoga as being a practice of intimacy, of being intimately connected with our moment-to-moment experience, so that the intention or the spirit of mindfulness practice is the spirit of bhakti yoga, is the spirit of devotion. So it's devotion to what's actually showing up in our moment-to-moment experience. And then we talked about how as mindfulness matures, we start to gain insight into the way things happen or the way things are. Not as commonly translated as insight into the nature of capital R reality, but insight into the way reality happens in our moment-to-moment verifiable existence. And what we gain insight into, literally looking into reality and seeing dukkha, impermanence, anitya, and anatmani, shunyata, uh, not self, and the empty nature of everything. So everything is empty of any one thing except relationship. Because when you look closely at physical reality, all you find are relationships. And the relationships go on and on and on. Try getting out of relationship. Has anyone had this? I've had this before. I've had times in my life where I think, I'm just done with relationships. It's over. But actually, you can't escape. Because all you are is relationship. All you are is relationship. So, then we broke that down into smaller parts, 
looking at the way that sense organs and sense objects make contact, creating consciousness. And because there are six sense organs and six sense objects, there are six kinds of consciousness, and they're all flickering all the time. We could spend a whole month just on that section, as you can imagine. And then, when there is contact, there is sensation. And when there is sensation, there is feeling. There are positive feelings, negative feelings, and neutral feelings. And this gives rise to, oh, I forgot a bracket. And this gives rise to either raga or dvesha. Raga is the desire to repeat pleasurable experience. And I used the example of my son yesterday with the bananas. And dvesha is the intention to get out of what's not pleasurable. And sometimes when this happens in spiritual practice, I like to call it the adolescent phase of practice. Because it's like a fork in the road that happens in our life, not just in each moment, but several times in our path, where we have to make a decision. Are we continuing to practice to feel good? Or are we practicing because we have the courage to look honestly at the way things really are? And I think that this is a kind of phase that we all have to go through again and again in our practice, where there are stages of practice where you have to really ask yourself this question about your life. Am I perceiving in a way, or am I taking action in a way that's allowing me just to feel good? Or can I look close enough that my actions and my intentions are influenced by really wanting by really knowing that um, we can see clearly and honestly, and it doesn't always feel good. In a moment-to-moment way, we're constantly oscillating between attachment and aversion. Wanting and wanting to get away from leaning into our experience, and leaning away from our experience. Are there any questions about this logic before we take it further? Okay, so let's keep going. Um, Let's back up, though, to the other end of the diagram. Oh, Caitlin, yes. You don't have to apologize before you ask a question. <laughs> um, well, I just, I should have been here. But, um, yeah. the, so, from feeling to um, attachment and aversion, yes. is that, like, that, <coughs> I'm just curious about, like, the little thing that happens there. Because yeah. there's, there's already a negative feeling, right? Yeah. So, does a negative feeling necessarily lead to aversion, or is there... Like, is that where practice comes in? in well, I mean, that's it, part of that depends on your character. Because some people, negative feeling creates attachment. Okay, yeah. And, right? Like, 
there are many people who, when they experience something unpleasurable, actually transform it into something that they want to keep going. Right? We all have this capacity. And also the opposite is true, which is uh, there are lots of people who, when they feel pleasure, uh, they have aversion to it. They're called psychotherapists. <laughs> you ever in a room with psychotherapists, it's like really hard to get the joy going. <laughs> That's an inner joke that I shouldn't repeat in public. Yeah. And is there, I mean, isn't there some version of like contentment or like something that's not attachment or aversion after the feeling stage? You're getting ahead of us. Okay. Yeah. Right now we're looking at kind of the habits in how we perceive. Okay. And most of the time, yes, there can be an experience of feeling and contentment arises. But most of the time, the momentum of what we were calling the default motor network, I like saying that, <laughs> um, is oscillating back and forth between Raga and Vesha. But we are going to talk about alternatives. Okay. Like maybe those are not the only <laughs> options. Doug. Just as you were talking about Raga and Vesha, it, it seemed to me that you can arise, you can arrive at the same place through either Raga or Vesha. In other words, let's say a person says, well, I'm averse to boredom. Yes. But they could also be attached to stimulation. Right. Does anything predict how a person tends to tip in one way or another? Because it seems, uh, it is, for example, do people tend to cling to things or do they tend to be averse to things, or do they tend to be both? Because if you can get the kind of the same outcome, yes. either through attachment or through aversion, yeah. is there anything going on that predicts or, or says something about which one? Absolutely, is? absolutely. So you could say that if you just backed up a little bit further, that which is what we're going to get into now, is that our sense organs are constantly being um, uh, uh, influenced by previous actions and the action could have been what happened a second ago but the action could have been what happened when you were five years old or the action could have been something that you've inherited through your genetics another way of saying that is we're always practicing with our habits and our habits are always being reinforced or our habits are always malleable depending on our relationship to them are they acting through us or do we have enough space around the momentum of our habits that we can try new things? So um, sometimes when I practice, I like to imagine that when I'm practicing, I'm practicing with my ancestors. So that when I sit, I'm sitting with the whole line of ancestry that has come before me. Uh, so my grandparents that I know about, their parents in Poland, uh, and just goes all the way back as far as I can imagine. Or uh, I like to sometimes sit and imagine that I'm in a long lineage that goes all the way back to the Buddha. And that he's in a long lineage that goes all the way back uh, to the sun, to water, to trees. So that means Whenever you take an action, your ancestors are right there. And when you take an action, your ancestors also take that action. When you have a proclivity towards depression, 
possibly that's also your ancestry working through you. And maybe this is why suicide is such a bad thing. Because when you take your own life, you are, uh, your ancestors are also all taking their own lives in that moment. Because the ancestry then ends. And uh, what about psychosomatics? Mm -hmm. So I guess the meditation practice that I did with Vipassana is where you're observing the sensations in your body. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they're really subtle or really gross. Yes. So yeah. it could be uh, memory or something, or even when you're in an asana practice. Yeah. How do you know really when? Yeah when to look at it as maybe an oppressed emotion. Yeah. Do you know what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, sure, sure. How does that play into that? Well, in a way, it's similar to the question Doug just asked. Right. So let me add a little more to the diagram and see if that explains it. And if it doesn't, then we'll keep going. Um, so sense organs are basically your whole body, the way you perceive reality. But all the sense organs are actually um, habituated, right? So our sense organs are not so pure. They're influenced by nature, by our family, by what happened to you in the first five years of childhood, right? by your genetics, by the way your culture constructs your sexuality, your personality, your relationship with money. So in a way, the sense organs are actually interdependent with culture and with genetics. You see? And the word for this in Sanskrit is called sanskara. Um, to actually break this word down a little bit, there are two interesting features of this word. Um, sum comes into English in two different ways. One is sum, like in mathematics, uh, the sum of uh, uh, two parts. Um, in uh, yoga asana, we have a posture called samastitihi. In that case, sum is the coming together in equality of two parts. Um, stiti means to stand. Uh, sum also comes into English through Latin as the prefix com, as in community. Right? So the coming together. And this is actually where you get the English word scar. So it's the coming together of scars. And kur, the kara, comes from the root kur, which is the same word that makes up, same root that makes up karma. Kur means to make. Okay, so this is actually a really important and fascinating word. Um, sam skara. So this is the coming together of actions that create scars, or that create traces. Um, and all those traces are elastic. 
Nowadays, it's cool to call them neuroplasticity. Um, I remember when, when my son was small, uh, for several years, uh, we took him to the island of Crete. And um, I taught a retreat there every spring uh, for, I think, three or four years. And uh, there was this little river that uh, went out to the ocean, to the sea. And his favorite thing to do was he would take a stick and he would put it in the river and then he would carve a rivulet off the river until water flowed into the sea. And then the more water that flowed to it, sort of a new vein was born on the beach. And then he would take a stick and he would draw another rivulet off that rivulet and he would keep going. And the more the water flowed through it, the deeper and deeper the groove got. Mm -hmm. And I think that image is really helpful to illustrate what's meant by samskara. Is that our sense organs, which is what we are, are uh, influenced by all of the activities we're constantly involved with. They're influenced by your parents, they're influenced by Hollywood, they're influenced by Google, they're influenced by Twitter, they're influenced by the weather, right? And then all the actions that we take <coughs> determine the nature of the samskaras. Jesse. Just, I'm a little bit confused when you say we are our sense organs because yeah. uh, I thought that we are not our sense organs that leads to suffering. Yes. You are yeah. your sense organs. Okay, let me say it another way. You are not your sense organs. <laughs> and it's all you got. More on that as we complete the circle. There are sense organs. The sense organs determine the way we perceive reality. But isn't the whole point not to identify with your sense organs? Yeah, but we haven't got there yet. We're... we're yeah, you and Caitlin are both trying to jump the gun, unless you guys are more enlightened than I probably are. Um, we're still here just in every day, like this is my knee, this is my head, it hurts, I have a headache because I drink bad coffee. Can we keep going? All right. So, um, the samskaras are your sense organs. So there are all these habits that we have that influence how we perceive reality. So for example, when you're a small baby, the way that your caregivers hold you determines to a very great extent your style of attachment. So if you had a caregiver, for example, a mother, who was always on top of you, always giving you more than you need, maybe because of her style of attachment, then sometimes it becomes hard to learn how to soothe yourself. So that then, later on, as you grow up, when the caregiver is not around, you may not know how to soothe yourself. And some people call this, uh, it says that people fall into two major categories, uh, feeling and not dealing, 
or dealing and not feeling. So there are all kinds of studies done by a guy named John Bowlby, who uh, they would leave a kid in a room and uh, watch what happens uh, when they're alone. And if the caregiver doesn't come, some kids go more towards feeling so much emotion that they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know how to self-soothe, for example. And other kids have a different attachment style, which is they don't feel anything, they just try and deal with the situation. And that's sort of two ends of a spectrum that's being simplified, uh, just for the purpose of explaining samskara. So uh, if there's a caregiver, for example, who uh, isn't there when you need them, you're going to have to find all kinds of ways to self-soothe in the absence of that caregiver. And then, as we grow into adults, we tend to choose, unconsciously, I might add, partners who then replicate those same patterns, even if the patterns are not helpful to us. But we choose them because that's what we know. Has anyone had this experience earlier on in your life, I hope, where you know you, you, you were with a partner and one day you realize, I've married my mom. <laughs> yeah. So we all go through this. I always joke that everybody should have a codependent relationship sometime, <laughs> just to get it out of their system. So... Um, our early experiences influence in a very, very profound way how we perceive reality in relational terms. This is one of the great insights of Western psychology. When I started my PhD, which I never finish, finished, my thesis was the relationship between teacher-student relationships in traditional uh, yoga and Buddhist practices and psychotherapy and how those relationships were similar or different. And one day uh, when I started doing my research, I asked a great yoga teacher, Patabi Joyce, uh, about this. And I said, uh, when a student comes to you to be your student, uh, traditionally, what would a teacher look for in that student? And he lit up. And he said that the student, in order to be uh, a disciple, had to complete certain sanskaras. That's the word he used. Right? And I asked him which ones. And he said the first one and the most important one is that the student would have to make peace with their parents. Now, this is a very profound thing, because we all know when we've put old wounds from our mother and father out of our hearts, or we've repressed them in some way, we then act them out in relationships. And we turn every person into our mother and father until we start to swallow our projections a little bit and heal those old samskaras. So, a samskara is a psychological, physical, cultural, genetic, 
capitalist groove. And based on what we do, those samskaras are either healed, modified, or reinforced. So this is like cognitive psychology 101. Actually, I taught this once to a group of psychiatrists in Boston, and they called this cognitive psychology on steroids, which I really liked. This model is kind of ramping up our understanding of how we organize our experience. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.